Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In the 1960s, New York sports writer Jimmy Cannon characterized sports as the toy department of life. This sentiment was later echoed by Howard Cosell, who eventually recanted his statement, having developed a newfound respect for sports and the athletes he covered. Fast forward to today, and our perspective has taken a complete 180. We idolize those who excel in nearly every sport, viewing them as heroes and role models, and they're among the highest earners in society. Undeniably, these individuals bring innate talents to their respective sports. However, these talents alone are insufficient. Their success hinges on what they do with their abilities, the discipline, practice, conditioning, resilience, and dedication to their sport. The question we face today is what we can learn from their success. In all aspects of our lives, some, if not all, of the skills exhibited by these athletes are crucial. How we utilize our talents, how we come to play every day, as the saying goes, can make the difference between success or failure in life. The narratives that we construct internally are what distinguishes greatness from mediocrity. These are some of the topics that my guest Sally Jenkins explores in her new book, The Right Call. Sally Jenkins has been a columnist and feature writer for the Washington Post for over two decades. She's been a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist and awarded the Associated Press Red Smith Award for outstanding contribution to sports journalism. And she's authored 12 previous books. Her work for the Washington Post has included coverage of 10 Olympic Games, and she became the first woman inducted into the National Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame. She's a graduate of Stanford, and her recent story on Chris Everett and Billie Jean King in the Washington Post was a masterpiece of writing, and to put it appropriately, was dead, solid, perfect. It is my pleasure to welcome Sally Jenkins here to discuss The Right Call, what sports teaches us about work and life. Sally, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you here. I want to talk first about this idea that unlike covering lots of other things in life, politics or foreign affairs or what have you, that you get to spend a lot of time around excellence, that there's an inherent excellence in, in, in the people that you cover and what impact that has and, and how that makes you think about the, the excellence that they bring to the table every day. Well, I think the advantage of covering sports is is that the excellence is on display in real time right in front of you, right? So there's decision-making, really, really high-level decision-making, organizational decision-making, individual decision-making. You know, everything an athlete does on the field or the court, no matter how um, inspired it might seem in the moment, is actually a micro-decision set up by much bigger decisions in the lead up to the game. And so decision-making is really what you're watching. Um, We don't get to watch most great deciders in live action. They're usually sequestered in offices uh, behind closed doors. We might get a shareholders report once a year uh, or a press conference by, you know, a Bob Iger um, uh, or the chairman of a large company, but we really don't see their deliberations live and in person. And, and, and in this case we do. And so it's a real valuable opportunity to study decisional leadership in live action. And part of it is, and it's a great quote you have from Bill Walsh talking about decisions and about thinking and that, that so much of what goes into the decisions that are made become intuitive at a certain point. Well, I think what Bill Walsh said was that he wanted to be prepared for all kinds of different eventualities because, you know, in the pressure of the moment, a lot of times uh, you don't do your best thinking. You can, 
you can freeze up. And so he wanted to have, he was the first guy to really plot play calling, to pre-script play calls. And he had this big card in his hand full of all of his options so that he didn't have to go rifling through his brain under pressure. He could look down at the card in his hand and say, okay, we told ourselves in prepping for the game this week that if it came to third and eight, uh, late in the game, and we had to have a first down, we thought our best options against this team were one, two, and three, right? So he would have all that spelled out. So, you know, it may have looked like a great play call under pressure in the moment, but there was a great deal of preparation by Walsh going into that. Uh, and he, uh, while he had a great deal of intuition for his players, uh, for chemistry, he did not want to go on, on a fortunate burst of inspiration or intuition on a really big play call in the playoffs to get to the Super Bowl. He wanted to know what his best options were and have it in a, on a card right in front of him. How does that square with, with the apocryphal Mike Tyson quote that you could have the best game plan in the world till you take the first punch to the face? Well, I mean, that's true. There, there's, it's, it's not necessarily apocryphal. I think it's true. I mean, the, the every general says that the best laid battle plan, I mean, then the bullets start firing. And, uh, and, and I mean, if you listen to military guys talk about leadership and talk about planning, uh, you know, you have to be like competition is protean, right? Things change right in front of your eyes. Uh, your, 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 your best intentions and your best laid plans go awry when they meet actual resistance. One thing that separates great NFL teams like the New England Patriots under Bill Belichick for so many years was that they practiced in the face of more real resistance than other teams. A lot of NFL teams are very reluctant to hit a lot in, in practice during the week um, or to practice at full speed because they're trying to save their legs. Uh, and that for a while was a real separator for the New England Patriots. And so resistance is important, understanding that the best laid plan is going to meet resistance. And then and then it's who adapts better. Really, the best teams you study in sports are the ones who make great halftime adjustments because, you, you, you know, a lot of people like Andy Reid will use the early part of the game. His play calling is almost like probes that he's sending out to test the opposing defense. And then at halftime, he can settle on a new line of attack that he thinks uh, is, is going to be pretty good in the second half after he's assessed a lot of things. Uh, coaches are great assessors of strengths and weaknesses in their opponents. Um, and a lot of times that quiet game within a game is what's going on. And the audience doesn't even realize that the first half has been nothing more than a couple of, you know, probing jabs to figure out where they can really land the big punch. The other thing that I think a lot of audience doesn't understand is, is that it's not just about talent, that you can have lots of raw talent, but without all of these other things, without the practice, without the planning, without the intentionality, that it all is, is for naught sometimes. I mean, talent is the most fractional part of the entire equation that leads into success. Uh, and I think that's true of any field, by the way, not just sports. Uh, my favorite example in the book is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers when they won the Super Bowl with Tom Brady uh, three years ago. 27 players on their roster had been rated two stars or less in high school uh, by talent evaluators. They were considered uh, not that talented out of the five-star system. Uh, and Tom Brady was one of them, by the way. So talent is really a, a red herring. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I mean, pretty much everybody's born with some kind of fortunate predisposition 
to do something. Uh, it's up to us to find out what that is uh, as much as we're able, if we're privileged enough to have choices. Um, athletes find it and exploit it and exploit it and exploit it. Um, and they are resilient in the face of setback and failure. I mean, can you imagine being told in high school, you're not good enough for a college scholarship and, uh, and then, um, and then winding up, you know, the head coach, uh, I'm sorry, winding up the, uh, quarterback of the Buffalo bills, which is exactly what happened to Josh Allen. Who's now considered one of the great young quarterbacks in the NFL. Didn't have a single college scholarship offer out of high school. Not one. The, the other part of it is the commitment and the practice you talk about and, and really the work that goes on off the field. You tell some stories about Peyton Manning that are just remarkable. Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone, I think, kind of thinks Peyton Manning was the golden boy. His father, Archie Manning, uh, had been a great, great college uh, and then pro quarterback. Uh, you know, he's born into into that sort of privilege. But you know, really, people forget that by his third year in the NFL, Peyton Manning's one loss record was 32 and 32, and he had led the league in interceptions. And as Peyton told me for the book, at that juncture, it was it, he said he was asking himself, you know, who am I going to be? Uh, and he had to cure some deficits and some weaknesses. He had some real strengths, mainly a good mind, uh, quite frankly. He had a, a, a live arm, but what he really had was a great mind uh, and a disciplined one. And uh, he would look at tape of every single interception he had thrown. And not only did he study that tape with his coaches looking for his weaknesses, but he then looked at tape of all the balls that he threw that should have been intercepted, but he just got a little lucky because maybe somebody fell down or dropped it, you know? So he was very meticulous in searching through his failures and his weak spots and then going about correcting them. You know, he had feet that weren't necessarily all that stable under pressure. His feet would kind of jackhammer around. And uh, when the defensive line started coming at him and his coaches uh, worked on that with him by in the middle of practice, they would throw heavy sandbags at his feet to try to get him to you know, make his feet more still, which then made him a more accurate thrower under pressure. Things like that. Uh, you know, the, 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 I think the, the job of a sports writer is, not just to deliver the score, but to tell stories like that so that people understand what's really going on out there. Do young athletes understand this, do you find, or is it something they really have to either learn personally or they watch mentors and, and, and watch the greats along the way? Is this something that young athletes intuitively understand or not? Oh, I, I'm not sure they do understand it. I mean, I think they, they you have to get lucky to fall into the hands of the right youth coach uh, or the right parent. Um, I, you know, I think that one reason why you have statistics like that, um, that one about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers talent evaluators, you know, only, only seeing all these kids who are future Super Bowlers as two stars or less. I think part of what happens is that the kids who are identified as talented may not end up working as hard, right? Um, if you're identified as a five star high school prospect, and someone else is a two-star, I mean, um, look, there's a legion of five-star prospects um, who didn't become Tom Brady. Tom Brady was a two-star um, who uh, was third string uh, on his Michigan football team in college, had to fight his way up to starting, and even his senior year spent the first half of his senior year splitting time with another quarterback because they just didn't trust how good he was. 
and then was chosen 199th in the NFL draft and became the winningest quarterback, you know, ever. And so, I mean, the, the separator for Tom Brady was his work and his self-belief and his decision that he was going to define who he was and not let talent evaluators do that. Uh, but he wasn't the most talented guy. He wasn't born with the greatest gifts uh, by any stretch. How important is the culture of a team or an organization? You know, we hear in business all the time that culture eats strategy for lunch. How important is the culture of an organization? Well, I think it's everything, especially for young athletes. I mean, you see a lot of careers maybe uh, stall early on because they wind up on a dysfunctional organization and, um, you know, particularly in, you know, the NFL or the NBA, you're, you're talking about leagues that demand the last measure of devotion and yet here you are and you're supposed to lay your body on the line for a dysfunctional organization led by maybe someone like Dan Snyder, uh, the Washington football team, um, where the front office is a mess. The, the owner is duplicitous and a sexual harasser and um, or at least enabled sexual harassment under him. And, uh, you know, um, it, it, one dysfunction leads to another. And there's a great description in the book about what happens um, when uh, a culture uh, is bad. Um, and this is what can, I think, maybe ruin young athletes is when a culture is poor, uh, Pat Riley, the president of the Miami Heat of the NBA and a former NBA championship coach um, himself, Pat Riley said what happens is everybody starts um, subtly gearing down their effort and enrolling everyone else in their own cycle of disappointment. And so really what you have is you have people slowly, their effort starts falling off until they're almost quitting, right? It's it's quiet quitting because they're not going to invest themselves into this dysfunctional organization and these dysfunctional people. Well, that can become a really bad habit if you fall into that um, culture as a, as a young athlete. Uh, it can be very destructive, and and um, you know you you wind up having to sustain your own effort on the sheer principle of the thing and hoping to get traded or or moved. Uh, to a better place. And a lot of times that's why you'll see athletes demanding trades. That's why you'll see athletes you know, wanting to get out of these situations where they don't trust the intentions of the leaders, you know? And is that culture just as corrosive even to the more experienced athletes? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the more experienced athlete who's been on a championship organization has a huge, a huge advantage. Um, and it's why you can see a guy like Peyton Manning come into the Denver Broncos who were a good team, but not a great team. And Peyton Manning is the last uh, link in establishing the culture. I mean, certainly Tom Brady did it in Tampa Bay. I mean, Tampa Bay uh, went from, you know, really not being a very good organization for years and years and years to, uh, to really flipping into a Super Bowl organization based on the fact that Tom Brady was the real setter of the culture in the building. Uh, you know, these guys can be hugely influential uh, because they, they show everybody how it's done when it's done right and what what winning habits look like. And uh, it it's, it's, can be really profound. And so, you know, the, some of the luckiest people in the world are the young players coming into the Kansas City Chiefs right now where they've got Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. Those guys will probably have much more successful careers, uh, even if they get traded or cut than a lot of other people who haven't been exposed to how Patrick Mahomes were. How different are these things, if at all, when we talk about more individual sports, when we talk about golf or tennis? Uh, you know, I mean, so the, the there's a culture in all of these sports, even though they're individual sports. Uh, 
you know, I mean, let's take swimming and Michael Phelps. Uh, Michael Phelps was, you know, the greatest individual Olympian we've ever had as a swimmer. Uh, but those people train together. And there's a funny story in the book. Uh, a lot of them train. They wind up teammates on relays and things. And they see each other at national meets. And they train at Olympic training centers and so on. And when Michael uh, Phelps is still a teenager, he's uh, he's on a bus with some older swimmers. Um, you know, decorated U.S. Olympians. And uh, someone says to him, you train a lot, don't you? And Phelps goes, yeah, I guess. And I think Phelps is maybe 15 at the time or 16. And uh, he goes, well, but I mean, you don't swim on um, on your birthday, do you? And he's like, yeah, I do. And he's like, yeah, but OK, well, but you don't swim at Christmas. And Phelps said, yeah, I do. Um, and in fact, Phelps, Phelps had uh, a great coach named Bob Bowman, who as a teenager really loaded him up um, with heavy workouts and, and, and had him swimming every single day because he was building the infrastructure physiologically that was going to allow Phelps to do things like go for eight gold medals at a single Olympic meet, which he did in Beijing. And so the culture of swimming, I think, probably learned a thing or two from this teenager and his new training program that was so arduous, you know, in a quest to build a future swimmer, you know, not for success in the moment, but to build a future swimmer. Uh, it was kind of like building a skyscraper. <laughs> One of the other elements that's so important in all of this is this sense, and it helps as a great example of sacrifice, that that you're, you're giving up something in order to achieve that excellence. Yeah, you can't, you can't have it two ways, right? right. I and mean, if you really want to go all in with something and have a great deal of success at it, you have to make certain concessions to the exercise, right? And um, and and that's just a fact. I mean, I you know, um, Derek Jeter uh, is a funny story in the book about De Derek Jeter. Everyone in Derek Jeter's life knew that uh, he was going to be in bed two hours after the finish of a ball game, no matter what, no matter where he was, no matter what invitations he had, uh, no matter who he was dating, no matter what. Derek Jeter was in bed every night during the season from, you know, uh, the summertime through November, through October, he was in bed two hours after the finish of the game, getting his sleep, eating right, you know, and other people can view that as tedious, but it is what it takes to really succeed in the big moment, you know, to succeed in the big moment, whether it's deadline pressure for a journalist at the Super Bowl, or whether it's, you know, being a hitter, you know, in a big game, uh, in a pennant race, uh, really, it depends on on how much preparation and how much commitment you've made to being able to call up the right responses when it counts, you know, to bring your best in the moment that matters most. That's what athletes do. And that's what we can really study from them and import into our own lives. What influence or impact do you find that that big dollars has in terms of all of these areas, that, that on the one hand, there's all this sacrifice and commitment, all these things that, that you've been talking about. And, and on the other hand, there's these huge amounts of money in many cases that, that have a, a different impact on the individual. And, and sometimes they're in conflict. Yeah, or sometimes not. I mean, there's a bunch of people who've never let the money get in the way. Steph Curry became a rich man a long, long time ago, but he still hunts NBA championships, and so does Steve Kerr. I mean, Steve Kerr got completely wealthy as a player. He didn't have, he doesn't need this. He doesn't need to have uh, the ulcers, you know, uh, on the bench in in uh, NBA playoffs. You know, when he, he doesn't quite have all the horses, 
you know, same thing with Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods was a, a rich man the minute he announced he was turning professional uh, as a player. It didn't stop him from hunting the all-time record. So, I mean, I think people uh, think that somehow money is corrupting. I'll tell you where I see it being corruptive, and it's not in the individual athlete. Money is corrupting to the bureaucrats who frequently sit on governing boards of these organizations. Money is corrupting at the director level of the PGA Tour policy board that is chasing this disgraceful deal with the Saudis to, to completely sell golf worldwide to a single Saudi financier, okay? The corruption is not in Rory McIlroy um, necessarily or even Phil Mickelson, uh, but it's in the a, a board that abused its governance powers to make a deal in a back room in a cigar bar to sell all of golf, you know, for coin, right? I don't see money stopping players from going after championships. I do see money causing bureaucrats um, who want more of the rake off, whose effort, um, who are making livings off the sweat of athletes. I do see money corrupting that decisional process. And how about owners? How does it affect owners, do you think? Well, it's the same thing. I mean, owners, um, you know, owners, a lot of owners, not a lot of owners, but many owners believe that that they're the real rainmakers, that they're the producers of the sport, and therefore that they should have, you know, a decision-making ability over the lives of others, even though uh, they're working in a field that they know very little about. So a lot of times you'll see these owners who made their fortunes in business, and then they come into the NFL and they can't understand, or the NBA, and they cannot understand why they can't transfer their success. And the simple reason is that they haven't studied, you know, uh, the sport. It's a business, you know, like it's a, it, it, creating a winning organization uh, and a winning culture uh, in sports is no more or less complicated than creating a winning culture or a winning business in, in the entrepreneurial world. Uh, but you have to know your stuff, right? I mean, you have guys study commodities markets, but they, they, they're not coming into these leagues having really studied the market they're entering, you know, and that's where they fail. Uh, they, they choose charismatic personalities. They don't really understand what makes a great head coach necessarily. So they'll hire a great personality or worse, they'll hire someone who reminds them of them. Right. So that's where I see, um, that's where I see franchise owners make mistakes. You know, what they need when, what they need to be doing is hiring a good general manager who's identified a very strong list of coaching candidates that he's been carrying around in, in his or her back pocket for years because they've been studying the sport and studying the personalities. Is it magical? And I don't mean that in a, in a magical kind of way, but when you see all these elements come together, when there's the right general manager and the right coach and the right culture in an organization, the way that all gels, talk about that and, and what you've seen in that regard. Well, that's called alignment, and uh, it's something that's really spelled out uh, beautifully by a Harvard Business School uh, teacher and analyst named Boris Groisberg, um, who's identified what what real culture is, what successful culture is in the in the business world, and it's when your your values and your personalities and your strategies are all in alignment; they're all lined up, right? And so, you know, it's it it makes no sense to say. Uh, you know, we have a creative culture in our building when your uh, 
not rewarding creative thinkers, but instead awarding raises and promotions to, um, you know, the older veteran people who who are just advancing the same old ideas in the same old corporate language, right? That's not a creative culture. So you're out of alignment. Um, and so really good companies, really good organizations like the Golden State Warriors is my favorite example, just because they've been so successful. Uh, Steve Kerr had a vision. He wanted his team to play with real deep joy the way kids play. He wanted a playfulness at the heart of his team. And you can feel it the minute you walk in the building. He said, everything um, that you have in your building, uh, every vibe that you give out has to be in alignment with your vision for how you're, you want that organization to be. So when you walk into a Golden State Warriors practice, big music is booming out of the speakers and you don't see guys in regimented lines, you know, in a layup line. Um, you see guys running around the gym, taking trick shots and playing with the basketball, literally. Steph Curry is throwing the ball backwards over his head. Steve Kerr is playing with them. So the, the theme of play is evident and palpable and visceral in that building from the moment you walk in. His players feel it. So that's real alignment. That's a, that's a real culture. And finally, when you look at business today or politics or, or any other endeavor that, that think they're being successful but don't understand some of these fundamentals that are really the key to success in sports, talk a little bit about your observations of that, having seen this kind of excellence that we talked about at the very beginning, really up close and personal. Yeah, you have to be able to repeat something, right? So uh, a lot of uh, baseball players might get hot on one hot hitting streak. But, you know, can they do it year after year after year after year like Derek, Derek Jeter? Um, you know, you, you, you have to be able to understand why you're succeeding and therefore to repeat the good, the goodness, uh, you know, the good habits and the good judgments that you made. Um, and that's, you know, uh, within the context of protean competition, which means factors are shifting all the time. Your personnel is shifting. Um, the makeup of your roster is shifting. The competition is changing and moving and uh, meeting you with resistance in different sorts of ways that maybe you didn't count on. And so the really good organizations, what I notice, whether they are uh, companies or whether they're teams, uh, is that they have a handful of really, really sound practices that are going to allow them to do things right more often than not. They may not win, they may not succeed, but their chances are better. And so they're more consistent over time. They're, uh, they appreciate the marginal improvement, the one to 2%. A lot of people go around looking for the magic bullet um, or the magic strategy or the magic answer. And really good organizations um, are, are content to get a little bit better here, a little bit better there because they understand that a 1% here, a 2% there can add up to really significant, you know, separating difference um, in the end. If everyone gets 1% better and your organization winds up with like a 10% margin, that's big, right? Uh, you know, and again, you don't win everything and you don't make every shot. I mean, the great clutch shooters in the NBA, uh, you know, shoot well under 50%. What they do is they put themselves in position uh, time and time and time again uh, to make enough of those shots to win. Sally Jenkins, the book is The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. Sally, I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. Enjoyed being here. I love talking about this stuff. Thank you.